3: This episode of See Here is dedicated to the one and only Marvin Lee day, otherwise known as Heat Loaf. Praise the loaf. <laughs>
4: to episode 93 of the see here podcast this is the start of our ninth year and there were so many people who said we'd never make it this far well maybe not so many people because we didn't have so many people listening but some people said we'd never make it this far and we have and later on this year we're going to be doing episode 100 more of that when we get to episode 99
3: we will be vindicated by history
4: (laughs) (laughs) so here we are january 2022 the start of another year and it's been another wonderful shit show but we're going to keep things positive and we're going to bring entertainment about music films to your ear holes we're proudly part of the pantheon podcast network dedicated to music discussion and joining me as i always do starting off in bath is bernard stickwell
0: uh good evening everybody and in brantford mr tim
4: merrill
3: hey we're sitting here circumnavigating the seas that she is and
4: joining us as special guest, a man who I've wanted to have back on the show for quite some time. And he's here in Melbourne. We're on the same time zone. Our wonderful friend, Paul Ryan. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much for having me back. It's wonderful to be back again. This time we're having you here for the whole show. We had technical difficulties last time, which counted you out for being on the whole episode. Starstruck. Go back to that episode, folks. A bit of homegrown Australian musical goodness for your ear holes. For those of you who didn't hear that episode, Paul is a local scriptwriter and fellow gent and fellow movie fanatic, you have gone and selected this episode's film under discussion. Uh, would you care to reveal it to the listening audience?
2: Absolutely. This week we're discussing 1984's Voyage of the Rock Aliens.
4: What we'll do, we're going to go play the trailer for said film, and then we're going to come back and we're going to put you in the hot seat, Paul, to work out why you picked this particular film. Okay, you're listening to See Here, here's the trailer. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Time and space. Their leader is Apsid. Their mission is for science. Their only vice... We used to sit around at night watching old-time movie shows. Is music. You didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know. What, did what did you think? We didn't think at all. Was Voyage the <laughs> of the Rock Aliens. Dusty. Their destination is the home of Dee Dee the hottest ticket in town her boyfriend frankie uh, the hottest temper in town and his band the pack who are always cooking but things are about to get hotter all it took was just one look and dd Dee Dee short-circuited his fuse box you know, some guys will do anything to press a girl. Now Dee Dee's got her chance. A, <laughs> about
3: Why don't you sing with us? Yeah.
1: This guy's gonna be doggy. But the pack want his head. We're stubborn. Sorry, guys. I guess I made a wrong turn. Voyage of the Rock Aliens. Dance. It's magical. Yeah. Maniacal.
3: Could, could you wait? It's too short. Sure?
1: It's got tunes. See, you never took auto shop. No. And tune ups. Okay. It's full of surprises. Watch it. And the beat never stops. Piazzadora. Tom Nolan. Craig Sheffer, Ruth Gordon, and a special appearance by Jermaine Jackson. So keep your eyes and ears open. And who's that? Your town might be next.
4: here, Bernie there, Tim somewhere else over there, and Paul very close to here. We're going to be talking about 1984's Voyage of the Rock Aliens, directed by James Fargo, written by James Guidotti and written over by Edward Gold, starring Pier Zadora. We're going to have a few things to talk about her, I'm sure. Craig Sheffer tom nolan the great ruth gordon and michael berryman and a couple of bands Rema, who were the devo substitutes and jimmy and the mustangs who were the blasters substitutes cinematography will have something to say about this fellow gilbert taylor he made a few films you might have heard of. The IMDb description is Aliens land in the town of Spielberg. Oh, how funny. Searching for the source of rock and roll.
3: Do you have rock and roll?
4: They find trouble with Dee Dee, Frankie and The Pack. All right, Paul, you picked this film. Why?
2: I've... Got a bit of a thing
4: for weird musicals.
2: I'm not really big on musicals as a genre, but the musicals that are out there that just seem, you know, a little bit wrong, a little bit off, just outside of, I guess, the what you would consider the norm for movie musicals, I have quite a fascination with. And in the 1980s in particular, it feels like there was a bit of a uncertainty about how to keep the movie musical form uh, alive and it uh, resulted in a lot of very unusual, odd, and sometimes terrible screen musicals. Things that came out around that time that are examples of this are um, Can't Stop the Music, Morris's favourite film of all time, The Apple. No! God,
1: please, no! No!
2: Grease 2, which um, is kind of regarded in, I guess, kind of inverse proportion to uh, the original. And Voyage of the Rock Aliens absolutely falls in with this period in film history. I'd heard of it I'd, for quite quite a long time, sent it listed in movie guides and so on. But um, nine years ago, Melbourne comedy duo Cinema Fiasco, uh, which consists of uh, Jeff Wallace and Janet A. McLeod, programmed this film to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Um, and their act is that they run cheesy, slash bad movies with comedic running commentary. Some of the films that I've seen them riff on are um, things like uh, Tentacles, Night of the Leapers, Killer Fish, Reptilicus and even uh, one Australian film the shot on video classic Houseboat Horror.
4: Sorry to interrupt were either of those part of the Double Take crew who did that no. sort of thing in the 80s? Okay. No. Jeff and Janet are
2: um, Melbourne based both originally from Ballarat like myself not part of the Double Take crew and um, yeah their, their thing is that it was, it's kind of like more like Riff Tracks Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of just riffing off the film rather than dubbing comedic voices. So yeah I saw uh, Voyage of the Rock Aliens when they programmed there in October 2013. I went in expecting something strange and cheesy and just, you know, not quite right. And that's absolutely what I got. I was quite grateful for the commentary by Jeff and Janet at the time but uh coming back to the film now after a few years i can certainly see the the intention the the spirit that they were going for and i can certainly appreciate some of the comedic lines that either work really well depending on who do, who delivered them or should work really well but aren't delivered well mm. that, that kind of thing mm-hmm. so um yeah for me this is one of those um,
4: kind of fascinating failures let's go around the table bernie what were your thoughts had you seen this before
0: Uh, No, it's a first time viewing for me, and I have to say I'm going to be the fly in the ointment again. I really didn't get on with this at all. I found this very hard going. (laughs) Absolutely shades of the apple all the way through it for me. Yeah, I don't know. It's strange because it's got all those kind of elements which I normally like and would normally make it work. Um, I mean, I've got a a nostalgic streak a mile wide. You know, I was a teenager in the '80s, so stuff from that period generally resonates with me anyway. This was, I just found it a real slog. I've, you know, we'll get into specifics, I guess, but um kind of hard going. It, it it strikes me as one of those films that I know, Paul. You said that you only saw it sort of nine, ten years ago for the first time. But it it strikes me as the kind of thing that if you'd have been around at the time and you saw it at the time and you were at that kind of impressionable age, yeah, you might feel a bit more sentimental towards it, or it might resonate with you a bit more for those reasons. But coming to it cold now as a fifty-year-old grumpy old fart,
3: I'm gonna make no secret that- I love cheese. All right. I love the films. of. I'm going down into like guys like Godfrey Ho, Bruno Matai, Joe D'Amato, you know, Claudio Fragasso. A lot of those films that are just so psychedelically bad that they've kind of come out, dug their way so deep that they've come out on top. But this was the rare block of cheese that I actually felt my arteries starting to harden. <laughs> I actually felt my heart start to slow. Man, like and I wasn't high at all watching this, but I felt <laughs> I felt like it was starting to put me into an induced state. There's a couple of things I wanna say initially, okay. I really think that this film was done by people that were not in North America and that all the names of the directors and a lot of the people are just pseudonyms that like the Italians used to do where you know Bruce Clark or whatever they they go and adapt some moniker to make it sound like they're American when they're really not and the first hint at that is the voyage of the quote unquote rock aliens I mean it's, it would be kind of hard to call this film like the voyage of the what someone was misconstrued as being rock aliens (laughs) but i was like where's the rock the third thing i wanted to say about this film and not to start to get into it but we know there were aliens but in the beginning of this film they're kind of switching dials to different planets to try to determine where the quote unquote rock is coming from and they wind up dialing into an 80s video with Jermaine jackson and pia zadora on another planet Piazzadora from Earth, or is she an alien too? Am like, correct? Me if I'm wrong. When they're dialing into that other planet, it's Piazzadora and Jermaine Jackson, right?
0: And it, it looks like it's about to kick off into some kind of Italian post-apocalyptic, right? Mad Max ripoff. Yeah, it? You, you I was getting kind of excited of a, then. You know, Mark,
3: Mark Gregory come rolling in on a yeah. motorbike with a skull <laughs> on the top of it. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, like guys it's, it's riding mopeds. Right, exactly. But it Which turned did. into uh, an episode of Friday Night Videos
0: from the 80s apparently to that music video kind of thing at the the start was added after test screenings I wonder why apparently there was uh, I think it was initially at the end or at least the song was at the end Right. and then um, apparently they shot the video and stuck it on the front and you know kind of obviously very poorly shoehorned it in to try and make some sort of sense at least as I understand it it with the limited amount of research I did and I gotta say Tim sorry just to jump in as well I totally agree with you that it kind of feels like it was directed by Italians using pseudonyms yep. there's just something about it it's almost like the film stock and the locations look. it looks like yep. it was filmed in Italy although apparently it wasn't it was all shot in the US somewhere wasn't it but yeah, absolutely has that vibe to it
4: as Paul has already gone and indicated how much I love the apple <laughs> and for those people out there who haven't heard the episode the truth of the matter is watching that film as I think I said in the episode gave me heart palpitations and I'm not even joking <laughs> I felt pains across my chest watching that film let's put this one into a little bit of context here now there was that period as you said of the start ball that the late 70s the early 80s brought us you know all those sorts of films like Sgt. Pepper with the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton there was Can't Stop the Music The Apple Xanadu
2: The Pirate Movie I just want to give a shout out to that because Bernie as you were saying before the films that you grew up with an ex-partner of mine grew up with The Pirate Movie as a, as a child one of her favourite Films and uh, she introduced me to that one yeah. um, when we were together, and that was an experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Spreading uh, the
0: joy.
4: Uh, also Forbidden Zone, which I only sort of caught on in the last couple of years. Oh, that's a great one though. Uh, but just sort of painted the picture of that overall era. There was a film that we spoke about a few years ago called Black Roses, and then oh. there was and then there was Shock Treatment, which was what, 81, 82, or, or something right. like that. Now, what separates these films from Voyager the Rock aliens is they sort of thought, right well we're just quite good no well well, (laughs) these films were they were saying right we're going to push the boundaries in ridiculousness you as i said before i hated the apple with a passion got the heart palpitations but i hate the fact that watching this makes me look on almost a little bit fondly with the apple because it was just so stupid so ridiculous they said we're not going to play it safe here and the problem with Voyage of the Rock Aliens is that it plays itself completely safe. I hear what you say about right. the cheese. My problem with it was there's not enough cheese. It played out to me like a really lame episode of Pick Your Hanna-Barbera cartoon. It's like, we got this idea, we're going to make it really zany, really wacky, and then they lost their nerve. It seems like it wants to be a parody, but they didn't have the guts.
3: I think there's something to what you're saying, but I think it's I'm approaching it from a little different angle, okay? with Xanadu when it came out was there anything like Xanadu before no was there anything like Can't Stop the Music before no was there anything like The Apple before not really But with Voyage of the Rock Aliens, to me, it's like at the time there was the big thing about Cyndi Lauper, Thomas Dolby, Devo, the Stray Cats. And basically what they were doing was just taking uh, the imagery of really famous or well-known musical pop figures at the time and just incorporating them into a script. And that's what
0: this is. It feels very cynical, doesn't it? Because, as you say, it's... There's no real thought that's gone into uh, the no. script, telling and the story. It, it is all those uh, those things, I, actually,
3: yeah. I feel guilty using the word script in this. <laughs> you know, having a scriptwriter with us now, let's just call it a boggle. It was them just basically going over a shopping list of who was hot in the early 80s and popping them into plugging them in, plug and play, you know.
1: Well, can I get you a doctor or a vanilla shake or something?
4: Paul, you pointed me towards a podcast interview with Rima, which were the band in the film that played the rock aliens. Now, did you get a chance to listen to the podcast yourself? Yes, yes, I did. So, just tell the guys about what they had to say about the so-called writing of the script.
2: They were quite unimpressed from the get-go. From the point where they were doing, because they, they, each of the band members had to do, or they had to do a screen test. Even at that point, they were um, quite unimpressed with what they were seeing in the script. But thought, okay, maybe you know this is what it looks like on the page. But you know, when they actually film it and edit it, it'll look great because this was their first experience with movie making. By the time they finally actually got to see it uh, four years later when it came out on home video they were proven right <laughs> they, they um, felt quite uh, just like even more unimpressed well, but they were writing the script every day they were writing the script on the fly yeah. I mean it's one of these things like when I guess this is my perspective as a script writer coming in but this film has three writers and it feels very much like different drafts of the script kind of bolted together and I think that that's most glaringly obvious with the you know You've got that battle of the bands where Jimmy and the Mustangs and Reema are doing their own versions of Let's Dance Tonight. I misremembered that when I came back to watch this film for the podcast. I thought I remembered that as the climax of the film because it has a very climactic kind of feel to it. And that happens like nearly half an hour before the end of the film. There's still this whole subplot with these escaped mental patients um, to play out. So there's another climax with that and the sea monster in the from the polluted waters that seems to have wandered in from a trauma film. <laughs> Yeah, just um, structurally, it's it's all over the place. And part of that is undoubtedly all the rewrites, but also probably reshoots and re-editing, like sticking the Jermaine Jackson and Piers Adora video on at the start of the film. Right. If this was played in any of the screenwriting classes that I've done, it would be um, as an example of what not to do <laughs> with
4: structure. <laughs> I found that one of the, well, one of the many disappointing things about the film, even if they've been, say, Some good songs in the film. It might have redeemed it a little bit, but with a budget like that, and this is sorry to sell short the musicianship of Reema or Jimmy and the Mustangs, because quite obviously they were, you know, real musicians who could do their craft. In fact, I read something that Jimmy and the Mustangs were supports on the LA punk circuit in the early 80s. They were supports for Los Lobos, for X, and for The Blasters. So they could actually play. This is not about them as musicians. But there was not a single song in the film that I came away thinking that that was as memorable, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether you think it's a great song or not. But I don't think it's as memorable as any of the other sort of early 80s movie songs like Neutron Dance from uh, Beverly Hills Cop or Footloose or Let's Hear It For The Boy or, you know, whatever. There's something about those songs that wormed their way into the public consciousness. Although, despite the fact that I think I read that the Pia Adora Jermaine Jackson song actually went to number one in some European countries when it was released, which is incredible to me because I, I'm just sort of thinking, where is the early 80s hook? And basically to be commercially successful at that time, there was some hook that needed to be there. I mean, I guess you could say that's a story for all pop music in general.
0: The early 80s were a dark time in europe <laughs> so you know as to what you're saying morris is a very very sorry state of affairs when you are making a musical and not one of the songs is memorable or catchy in any way whatsoever it's, it's kind of like completely uh you know fumbling the ball isn't it
3: and you know what's funny too is i found with both bands have you guys ever seen those films where there's actual bands that are playing, quote-unquote, bands in a film, and it's almost like they're hamstrung. They're having to play in a kind of really different form of what the band really is. I could see Jimmy the Mustangs really being a more street-level, like I said, like you were saying, closer to the Blasters or X, but it was like they're almost like this, like, piss-poor stray cats. Yes. And not, not even that. Even with Rima, it was like, I like some of the stuff they were doing, but it was just like too much on the nose to Devo. Way too much on the nose, yeah. you know? And it was like Aaron Thomas, Dolby and all of that. But I mean, that's what they, the quote-unquote script, the bog roll, required. But I just I just thought it was kind of funny how both bands seemed to me to be really kind of, you know, hamstrung, like tied, they had their hands tied behind the back of them. You know, I know what you guys can do, but just do this, alright?
4: Alright. I mean, look, I think that the Devo comparison purely comes in because of the way that they had to dress for the film they had those wraparound dark glasses and those big space suits this is a film strung together by music videos when you think about it there's this bit where uh, we see Rima walking like robotically with their hands going left to right to left to right as they're walking through the park and that sort of brings to mind what we might think of as a Devo look But the songs themselves, apart from maybe the fact that there's some electronics involved, really didn't remind me of anything of Devo, but it's more about the
0: look. It's more like a a a producer's idea of what Devo would sound like as opposed to what Devo actually sounds like. And the same with the the, the Mustangs, yeah. Which again, just reinforces the whole cynical cash grab feel of the whole thing, you know? When you were talking about Morris, them
3: walking down the street with their hands robotically, you know what that reminded me of? Madness! <laughs> no, like it just, it did. It, to me that was hilarious because i'm just thinking oh yeah okay i, I know what this is the
1: first time i ever had a paper dollar bill in my hand i was 12 years old i let one of the boarders spend the night with me maybe that was bad but the things i bought with that money was good and if that's bad and I want to
4: be bad. Going around the table, I want to ask, have any of you seen Butterfly?
2: No. <laughs> I think I've seen a couple of films where Pia has had a cameo or played herself. But no, I haven't seen Butterfly or the films that she made before this.
4: Giving away my age here, Paul, because you may be too young to remember this, but I remember when Butterfly came out. I mean, it was not the sort of thing that whatever 15-year-old me was going to go see or 16 or however old I was at the time. 81, Morris. She. You- You'd have been a full-grown man at that point, wouldn't you, in 81? Hang on, listen. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite. I'm not like the character in The Hills Have
3: Eyes, Bernie. <laughs> not that i Yeah. Old. Not to sound like a pig or anything, but Butterfly and uh, the movie The Lonely Lady that came out at that time was turning many uh, a young fellow into a quote-unquote full-grown man. Yeah,
4: sure. There was a ton of controversy in the local newspapers on the news. It was a big deal. I couldn't find anyone though at the time who had actually seen the film. If
3: I remember correctly,
0: Stacey Keach. That's right, and Orson Welles. Yep. Do you know? I remember. I I would have been ten at the time and i can definitely remember the controversy around it mainly because this is 81 82 and of course this was kind of like as home video was really kicking in i have vivid memories of it being in our local video library hmm. and you know obviously never seen it
3: there's no obviously no comparison but they were trying to push her, her i remember in the early 80s almost like a next generation brigitte bardot or something like that she had that kind of european french look to her like she had that that kind of those pouty lips and and all that the little nymphette or whatever
0: i mean i just remember that
4: she got the uh, golden raspberry the same year that she got the golden globe for butterfly
0: wait a minute she won the golden globe yes for butterfly for
4: best new talent or Jeez. or new star of the year or something like that Wow, well i
0: missed i slept through that
4: goodness <laughs> Jesus. But here's the thing. She's no actress to speak of. And yet, and you so you think, well, maybe she's a perfect fit for Voyage of the Rock Aliens. But you watch this and, yeah, her acting is no great shakes, but... I've seen far worse than that in terms of, you know, what would win the Raspberry of the Year Award, the Golden Raspberry. I mean, she's no Tommy Wiseau.
3: But I think the difference is, in other things, there's people that can act, and then one person in the midst that can't. Whereas everybody in this is pretty wooden. Uh, aside, you know...
4: Yeah, good from, point. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, I mean, she really doesn't stand out. I mean, you know, one, one stick is not going to stand out in the forest. I think
2: with the story goes that her first two films Butterfly and Fake Out were financed by her then-husband Meshulam Rickless who was a squillionaire who uh, invented the basically the term corporate raiding where a corporation gets um, bought and then broken up and sold off into little parts um, think Richard Gere's character in Pretty Woman I know there was controversy around her Golden Globe win because uh, Rickles had supposedly lavished the Hollywood Foreign Press Association with trips to these Vegas hotels and gifts and things like that. And I think the notion of of a young actress who's basically being financed by her for want of a better term, sugar daddy sugar to get right out front and center when she hasn't really done the hard yards. She only done, I think one film before butterfly. And that was the infamous Santa Claus conquers the Martians in
3: nineteen seventy-four. <laughs> That's what I remember it from.
2: I think that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Like particularly I could easily see that rubbing John Wilson, the founder of the Razzies the wrong way. And I think that that probably harmed her career straight out of the gate. Whereas I think had she, I don't know, had she done more, bubbly comedy kind of roles I think she would have had a better chance at a at a film career I mean as stilted as much of the acting is in Voyage of the Rock Aliens I think she's got a you know a bright bubbly sort of presence and oh yeah uh, And, I mean, she ended up in, like, hairspray and stuff like that. So, yeah, I feel like if she maybe started with, maybe not this, but something along these lines that was, you know, silly and fun, oh, yeah, intended as silly fun, Mm. I think that uh, she would have had a a better film career as a
3: result. Do you guys remember a film that Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum did called Vibes? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, I've never seen it. I could have seen Peter Zador doing that kind of thing. Like Paul was saying, that these kind of, you know, wacky comedies and he's kind of you know off kilter I could have seen her doing that because what what was funny was as I was watching the film my wife happened to be walking by and there was the beach number
1: some people think they can get
3: Uh, the bigger lady steps on the tentacle is going to drag the guy off and all that. And she's like, wow, she's just like, she really gives off almost like a Cindy Lauper vibe. And I was just like, she does. You know, just her fashion and presence. But again, that goes back to kind of like what I was saying earlier about the kind of bargain basement street cats, bargain basement <laughs> Devo, and bargain basement Cindy Lauper. Absolutely.
4: Maybe she would have had a career as um, Jane Fonda-like, aerobics size type instructor, because of all the choreography oh, and that it. beach scene was... Uh, looked like it was uh, taking its
0: cues from Jane Fonda. She had an exercise workout tape out at some point. (laughs) Sorry, I I, I just wanted to ask you, Paul, as you chose this one, and we're all being fairly negative about this, (laughs) I don't want to put you on the spot, but give us some sort of positive things that you take away from it, if you're able to. (laughs) (laughs) For its
2: failings. Uh, I feel like there is a certain sincerity to the the film, even if it's obvious that they've got like a a manufactured Devo and and, right. and so on. I do feel that there was an earnestness there to you know try and make something fun. I feel like even if isn't necessarily not necessarily the case behind the scenes always um, from what I've heard, but some of the performers look like they're having fun and enjoying you know what might have been a shot at start. And in counter to Morris, I actually have a lot of affection for the Apple, um, and it's um, <laughs> just the bizarre go for it sincerity of that film. There are some parts of Voyage of the Rock Aliens that remind. me of that really. some of the slapstick gags are just so so clunky but done with you know such verve that mm-hmm. you know you just kind of think well you know they wanted to make a good movie they wanted to you know they wanted to entertain um, even if that didn't necessarily um, uh, work you
0: can uh, you can certainly see a, a kind of certain level of commitment from most of the people in it can't you sure yeah, sure. Uh, yeah you can't yeah. fault them for that the film it's competent there's dance sequences
4: and as you say Paul there's definitely a spirit of something going Going on here, but it's that they don't go far enough.
2: I do like it's that rare film where Michael Berryman gets the girl. <laughs>
5: right,
3: <laughs> that's great. That was one of my favorite parts of this too. See,
0: you never took auto shop. No. It's okay. I was yeah, going to say the too only that film where he gets the girl. All the other this, ones, I suppose he gets to kill the girl, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and the eat, eat the girl, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I was going to say this
3: film though has really influenced another film that was hugely popular after this. The film I'm talking about is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, I definitely saw elements of mm-hmm. that. I'm thinking first and foremost of the telephone booth. Yeah, yeah, but it's just, and there was this little, the way, the the wackiness, and that was how you did wacky, right? You know, but this came before that. So I, th- I find it really interesting. It's just, yeah.
4: So you're saying this film could have been better if they'd have booked George Carlin to be in the film.
3: Oh, I don't think they could have got a guy, Carlin. They, they were on that level. But out of all the negative shit to come out of this, at least everybody in that film could honestly say to other people, I made a movie with Ruth
4: Gordon. Even here somewhere that I have to complain is that Ruth Gordon was underutilized. It looks like they're going to give her this arc where she's going to be, even if not necessarily like a major part of the film, but she's going to follow these rock aliens until she gets them. It's almost like she dispenses with them fairly early on. With
1: You boys see anything strange around here? No! Better go on back to town where you'll be safe. I
4: think her appearance was a real missed opportunity because, yeah, we, we obviously all love her. And they did make some use of her in the film, but just for me, not nearly enough.
3: Do you guys know who Al Lewis is? Of oh, Grandpa yeah. Monster? Grandpa Monster. She was like the female Grandpa Monster. Like, I could almost see her chomping on a cigar in this film. It's just like, <laughs> did you kids see anything weird? You know, like, <laughs> it's just, and it was, that's what she reminded me of. She was like the female Al Lewis, right?
2: One bit that I, that really did stand out. That- A bit that I genuinely did like was um, that bit where she has to call that widow.
1: Am I speaking to the widow of John S. Lamont? You must be mistaken. I'm not a widow. The hell you're not.
2: Yeah, like it feels like a bit of a hoary sort of setup, but she sells it really, really well. Just saying, you know, Yeah. yeah, this is the hardest part of my job. There's no easy way to do it, but it's got to be done. Yeah, you know, whatever else doesn't work in that film, I think that that does.
4: She gave me the one genuine laugh I had in the film, and it was the other line where she sees Michael Berryman and i forgot forgotten the name of the other actor, uh, the, these two escaped mental patients wandering through the streets with a shopping cart full of guns.
1: Keep up the good work, boys. Now a fine
0: example of our right to bear arms.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the, the one moment
0: that gave me a laugh. Didn't you think those those two characters, the uh, Michael Berryman and whoever the other was, he like the breather or something he yes. was called because yeah. he had yes. the oxygen yeah. mask. Yes. It's like they just wandered in from another film that made no sense. It had no yeah. relation to anything. I see what you're saying, but in a way, this film for and you
4: want something positive. This film may have been like a precursor to. Oh, gosh, I wish I could think of an example, but I know that there are other film parodies that come along the way Uh, and they're more like film parodies of very specific films but their whole shtick is to take in an element of this and an element of that and an element of the other thing so this film is trying to say we want to parody we want to bring in elements of the beach movie of the 1950s sci-fi movie of the young lovers movie of the battle of the bands the musicians fighting it out sort of movie and well let's throw in the Escape violent metal patients type of movie
3: it's almost like student bodies or something like that like i mean where you know like you're saying like they're parodying specific things yeah, yeah
4: i don't actually see them coming in as a bad thing because there's all these other elements and of course oh, i think one of you mentioned well it could be an environmental film you know because of the the tentacles coming in uh, at, <laughs> at, a, at a polluted river
0: yeah. i'm sure that was on their mind they were making a yeah <laughs> it's, it's they also were really, uh, adopters of pro-environ uh you know You know what I'm saying. I don't, but you need... It's also an example of the very, very narrow genre of movies where people get killed by
2: electric toothbrushes. Um, (laughs) The only other example of that I can think of, and it's possible that the makers may have seen this, I don't know, but Boogeyman 2 from uh, 1983 um, has a very, very bizarre death by electric toothbrush scene that is played completely straight. That's the only other example of this genre, but uh, I immediately thought of that when... uh, <laughs> and good old Uncle Louie Lamelle. Yep. Once upon a time
1: there was a comeback.
3: to say too, one guy that we, we haven't talked about yet that is a real face in this movie is Craig Schaefer mm. because I think a lot of people you know that are in the horror will remember him as Boone from Nightbreed but he never really went beyond that. i never really seen him after Nightbreed. It was just kind of like the guy just like, faded off into the ether.
0: I think he just wound up going into uh, using a lot of TV stuff. I think he just went into sort of lower budget kind of films mm. and so forth. He never quite had the career that perhaps he was being groomed for because right. he's certainly got those kind of young rugged good looks in this Right. you've uh, seen
2: um, A River Runs Through It which he starred in the Robert Redford film yeah as Brad Pitt's brother I mean he's got the larger role over Brad Pitt and you look at him in that as well as Emily Lloyd who played his wife in the film like two actors who were being groomed for big things but ultimately for various reasons didn't quite get to the A-list but you watch a film like that and think think about what, what might have been because yeah yeah, They're yeah. Both superb in that film.
0: It's a shame because you know uh, he's obviously got the chops, the skill. He could have been a lot bigger. I guess it's just the question of the right roles at the right times. How it goes, isn't it? And in that podcast
2: interview that I listened to with two members from Raymer, they said that Craig Sheffer was really nice, you know, one on one, but it was also extremely intense and uh, <laughs> to the point where when they were preparing to shoot that first beach scene where Frankie gets jealous of talking oh, yeah. to Dee Dee, somebody found him off it in the tree trees near the set, beating himself over the back with a branch to get his anger up, to get his rage up before that scene. According to the band members, uh, he nearly got replaced on the film because they felt that he was too serious.
4: (laughs)
3: <laughs> hey. so, so they were like, we're not looking for Daniel Day-Lewis here, dude.
4: No. <laughs> the famous story of Lawrence Olivier to Dustin Hoffman. Dear boy, have you tried acting?
2: <laughs> actors have their process, but yeah, you know, some of that intensity can kind of mess up the dynamic with sure. other actors as well. Sure. Like, I used to act and I did a one-act play a long time ago where um, we had our own dynamic and our own groove and then um, there was another play that was going to be part of our program when we all went into the rehearsal space we started meeting the cast of the other play and two of the actors had to play like really nasty, in that play had to play really nasty, buggish sort of characters. And both of them decided they were going to stay in character for the entire time that they were in the theatre space. Oh. And uh, not only did it mean that they were like, you know, aggressive and abrasive and-, and all of that, it also meant that a whole lot of our cast started feeling like they should be staying in character for, for the whole play. Right. And half of the cast of our play were playing playing angels. So that (laughs) (laughs) that (laughs) that makes things especially
3: weird. One thing that I was going to say that, Morris, going back to what you said about your love of the machismo cheese and that there wasn't enough in this. It makes me wonder where when you put something out, obviously, you know, back in the 80s with independent film, you know, with marketing, they wanted to cover as many markets as they could to get their returns. And it makes me wonder whether, you know, if they had gone full more intense with this, you know, like with an R rating or had thrown in some gore or thrown in some more raunchiness or some more, you know, full tilt insanity, they really wouldn't have been able to get that kind of PG market or that kind of youth market. It would have turned into something that was for more 18 plus. And I think that's that maybe that they were trying to dial it down a bit to, you know, get a wider net. What's interesting though is that when you think about it, like when Rocky Horror came out in the the end of the 70s, that was actually pg i didn't know because like in canada at least it was because we didn't have like a 14 plus rating it was pg and restricted it was g pg and r and to me now looking back at rocky that's an r film but with the dearly departed milo playing you know singing hot patootie and playing the sax and then you look at this I can see the bridge, whereas this is more like, no, we can't go that far. And the funny thing is that the way that this film ultimately wound up commercially is
2: that it was basically given a very, very limited cinema release in the US and went straight to video everywhere else. You know, if they'd known when they were making it how the film would end up, maybe they should have gone a little bit harder and committed a bit more because people were going to just ultimately discover this film on video.
4: And just sort of to counter your point, Tim, the early 80s was the time where the teenagers, they didn't want to just sort of see something that was maybe a tad stronger than Disney. They were looking at seeing things of that R rating. I mean, your Friday the 13th and your Nightmares on Elm Street and the like. Right. That would have all been American R rated and they went, as far as popularity goes, they went gangbusters. So I, that's why I sort of think as well that when I was saying that they should have gone full tilt, it wasn't necessarily in terms of how explicit the content was although that could very strongly be part of it but in as much as just being committing more to the material and we're going to be really zany we're going to be really wacky but yes I don't think that going the R rating hurt a lot of films in the early 80s
3: there was a film that Vinegar Syndrome label put out a couple of years back that came out around a little later than this one that I compare this to and it was a film called Surf 2 and I don't know if any of you guys have heard of that Perfect. I think it, it, seen it yeah it was the first film that eric stoltz was in actually or maybe i think it was before richmond or maybe it was after richmond i could be wrong but it was that zany beach movie that was almost like aping uh frankie avalon and at funicillos you know the back to the beach you know those the, the beach blanket bingo films but it was pretty full-on like zany so that's kind of like what you're saying yeah and eddie deason was in it yeah one of the things that i do find kind
2: of leaps out at me and it's a bit of a i guess delicate subject but i do feel like there are a couple of moments in this film that definitely play badly in in this day and age. You've got that scene where the aliens just all kind of start pouring and groping Dee Dee's friend Diane as they're Mm -hmm. kind of getting to know her and she's sort of kind of trying to laugh it off but that's quite uncomfortable to watch and I mean I have no doubt that it was intended to be a a certain kind of uncomfortable back then but maybe not the same uncomfortable that it plays today in today's um, discourse about consent and then you've also got that scene where absid activates that ray that's meant to make DD want him but ends up uh, malfunctioning and turning all the men gay and they uh, climb all over him
1: I didn't know you were that way I don't understand I never felt that way about a guy before it was kind of interesting. Or did you
3: guys notice, like, I felt like it was a weird edit when they're sitting in the car, when they're making out, and all of a sudden it snaps, and then it goes to him, and he's wearing the sweater, and then all of a sudden it goes to her, and
0: she's topless? Oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I was just oh, like, yeah. what the hell was that all about?
3: And yeah. it just came in and, it allow, and like it, it was a weird edit, like a weird cut. I was like, that was just bizarre.
2: Well, there was also that bit that they fire that ray that ostensibly makes people's clothes vanish.
3: I've seen everything, you know. I've seen it all.
4: <laughs> right. His girlfriend um, slaps him right. quite understandably. It's like, yeah, this was 1984. Paul, we're talking about the yeah. era of porkies and
0: different times. Yeah, Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
4: I wanted to bring up two more people in regards to this film. One who was definitely listed in the credits, the other one, not so much, but I'm sure there was a connection. So it's, Interesting to me to sort of think about for a lot of people from the technical side of a film, they just have to go where the work is. So specifically uh, the cinematographer Gilbert Taylor, the man who made this had previously made Macbeth for Polanski, Frenzy for Alfred Hitchcock, Ice Cold and Alex, one of my very favorite, possibly my very favorite World War II film. Doctor Strangelove, Kubrick, an undervalued comedy, British comedy from the sixties. Call me Genius with Tony Hancock, and he was a cinematographer for a little rock and roll film you might have heard of called Hard Days Night. He, oh, he,
0: wow. was, also,
4: oh, he was also the founding member of the British Society of Cinematographers.
0: But it was obviously all in preparation for his uh, piece de Resistance, Voyage <laughs> the, of the rock film that, that we're discussing today. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry,
2: Morris, did you mention um, uh, one other item on his CV? A little film called Star
4: Wars? Oh, I, mm. I, I, had, I thought it was a bit too obscure for this show. So, um, yeah, well, and yeah. And yeah. Flash, See, also, also, there was this little film, yeah, Flash Gordon. Flash well. Gordon, yes, yes. Can you imagine him going for the interview for Voyage to the Rock aliens? Well, show us your CV. Oh. <laughs> right.
3: I've heard of one or two of these films. There's two kinds of people. There's people that are in the industry that is just like, there's the film, there's two kinds of film. The film I just did and the film I'm doing now or else there's the kind of people that are just like oh god you know where where did I go wrong you know <laughs> and it's just like you got to admire you know somebody that has such a pedigree to say you know yeah okay I'll do that you know put your pride aside or whatever or even just you know if you love film you're going to help I anybody it- bring their vision to fruition regardless of how horrid it is or you know the level of cheese I'm wondering whether it his on the
4: one hand just another gig for him so he thought I don't care or whether the film was sold to him differently because originally this film wasn't supposed to be a rock and roll sci-fi film it became that I think the original script by James Guidotti may have been funnier or it may have been more brutal or it could have been anything I'm not. we're not necessarily saying that it would have been a prime example of classic 80s cinema at any stage but it was possibly sold to him as being something very different to what it ended up becoming
0: i don't know i I think perhaps he's old school definitely and he's a professional and he obviously takes uh, pride in his craft and it's it's just the job isn't it and when you're paid to do a job you do the best job you can right he definitely strikes me as that kind of guy you know
4: one other man who is not listed in any way in the credits because he didn't really directly have anything to do with the film but I think you pointed this out to me Paul was Glenn Wheatley. Yes. So amongst the songs that are in the film, so there's an Australian connection. The opening song of the film just over the opening credits is a song called Open Hearted by techno band of the period Real Life who were famous for having put out a couple of songs Send Me An Angel and Catch Me I'm Falling neither which appealed to at the time. They were one of those bands that had that very big Lin drum sound and the Lindrum's drums were my nemesis back at the time. Neither of these songs even had the catchiness of something like Do You Want Me by The Human League and I wasn't a Human League fan but at least there was something catchy about that melody. Glenn Wheatley he started a label, like originally he was a bass player for The Masters Apprentices, a really beloved 60s and 70s band from here and then he just sort of became an entrepreneur, became a manager, started up his own label and real life were on the Wheatley label. But I think in a way more interesting was another song in the film called My World is Empty Without You by John Farnham. Farnham, Johnny Farnham, you know, ubiquitous in this country. But what I find interesting is where this song appears in his career. In the late 60s to the early 70s, John Farnham was the king of pop and he then went into doing stage musicals, put out albums of show tunes, and his career had sort of gone a long way away from what he'd originally intended it to be. So he comes under the management of Glenn Wheatley and he records this album uh, I think his first on the weekly label may have even been the first weekly label album called Uncovered, which was very AOR production, very slick and not at all intended to appeal to teenagers. At least I don't think so. That sort of got him moderate success. He went on to join the Little River Band once Glenn Shorrock had left and that was supposed to be the next big thing and that didn't quite work out. And then he recorded Whispering Jack, which was his syntho pop album. And he became the biggest thing ever in this country at the time.
2: Uh, first Australian album released on CD as well.
4: Uh, yes, yes, that's right. It was. I think it was also the first CD that was put out by an Australian CD manufacturer. Uh, oh, yeah. I can't remember the name of the company, but yes, everything up to that point had been imported. But this was the first uh, CD pressing plant, first Australian album on the CD. It was, it was a big, big deal. And once... Whispering Jack came out. That was it. He was ubiquitous. But the point is that this song in this film, My World is Empty Without You, comes in between the uncovered period where his name was just starting to be something again. And he might have still been in the Little River Band, which wasn't going anywhere. And Whispering Jack. So somewhere between moderate success and stupid success. So the connection is, I think, I'm wondering how Glenn Wheatley came into the picture getting two of his acts onto the soundtrack of this film? Was he thinking, wow, this parody about space aliens coming down to Earth to look for the source of rock and roll in the universe, which is a theme that's never actually followed up on after the first couple of minutes of the film, I might add. But I'm wondering how Glenn Wheatley was sold this idea saying, you want to get your Australian act big in the US, put them into this B-grade sci-fi parody. I tried looking for an interview with Glenn Wheatley to see whether he had any recommendations. Collections of how he was sold this idea, or sold that this would be a good idea,
3: or sold down the river. Sold down,
4: yeah, I definitely was. I, I was, as I said, I was never a real life fan, and not really a John Farnham fan, but. I respect the fact that John Farnham came up with these number of songs which appealed hugely to the population at the time. I just find it amazing that there was this dark moment where he, they probably thought, yeah, you're not coming back, John. That's it. Forget it. Glenn Wheatley was a good businessman and you know he, he achieved huge success. And I just wanted to know how they, he got into this misstep and why he thought that this was his ticket for his acts into America.
2: It's interesting that like around this time, time, some of Farnham's songs turned up in other movies in the US. Most notably um, Savage Streets, the Linda Blair rape revenge film, right. but, but also um, the Hal Needham motocross BMX film Rad and uh, Hal Ashby's The Slugger's Wife, Fletch, things like that. And uh, Real Life also turned up on um, the soundtrack of Savage Streets and rad as well right. there's a montage in rad to the tune of send me an angel that's um mm-hmm. yeah, yeah become a bit of a childhood touchstone for some people who grew up with the film it's also used for another montage in of all things teen wolf 2 when jason Bateman is trying to study for an exam and not use his wolf powers through the whole thing very odd choice for that scene but yeah i guess i don't know maybe they were just kind of packaged like just that's the, another possibility uh,
4: Yeah. We've spoken a lot about a lot of peripheral sort of stuff. Maybe not as much about the film, but. All we can say to the listeners out there is, if you think you'd still like to watch this, and please have fun with this. This is on YouTube and it's on Tubi. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's on
3: Tubi. That's how I saw it. This is the kind of film that I agree that there was a real earnestness to this, you know. And I agree that you know it's like they're just trying to have fun with this, and there is fun in it. But I think you need to sit around with a group of friends, get your alcoholic beverages of choice or some party favors, and have a howl at this. And and there's just a goofiness to this that for some will be infectious and for some it will be uh, what they want to write down as part of the Geneva Convention. (laughs) So I mean, but my wife really was digging it for what she saw. But I know now I'm gonna include this next time I have a a get together with people. I wanna screen this and Tammy and the T Rex as a double bill. Or there's other things I'm I've already been thinking I wanna screen this with. You know, just those. Or you know, I could see this and and Troll too, big time too as well. You know, it is one of those, and I think it, it it will. It's gained some cult notoriety, you know, very obscure cult notoriety. But I know there have been other people that have done 24 uh, hour all like movie marathons like in the U.S. and other places that have screened this, you know, in the middle of the night after, you know, heavy fare. This is, is like some Saturday morning breakfast cereal not good for you and it's just going to like saturate of,
0: uh, you. additives and uh, right. sugar yeah. and-,
3: and it's going to keep you blasted you know through the whole thing <laughs> and you're just going to be like you know th- you know I, I, that was not good for me but man that was just bouncing along like i can think of one way that I could see the film might have been
4: improved. And I'm not just talking about having a better script or more competent actors or anything like that. But musically, I would have liked to have seen Rima replaced by The Tubes because I think that you know, there's, there's something about those guys. I, I, can't you just see Fee Weybill? as the leader of this group. And I like to think that they probably would said, no, we're not going to do that romantic shit. And when they do zany, I like to think that the tubes would have done it right. Uh, uh-huh. I, yeah, I'd have liked to seen it And actually I was sort of coming back to, there, there was the um, the moment in the film where there's a show in the gym auditorium at the high school where Rima and Jimmy and the Mustangs are playing off against each other on the one song. And that's sort of already been done. That was done in Xanadu where it oh, was yeah. the tubes Tubes and Olivia Newton-John playing off stylistically against each other because Michael Beck wants the Tubes and Gene Kelly wants, well, we hear Olivia Newton-John's voice. It's not actually Olivia Newton-John that you see in the film, but it's her but, you know, the old 1940s style and they, in a way, it's the first mashup if you think. The two stars fighting it out against each other. So it's there's a Tubes connection there as well. But yeah, I, I like to think that the Tubes would have been for visuals and for wackiness would have been in some small way might have made the film even with the same script and the same actors and all that might have made it a little bit more enjoyable for me but that's just personal
3: right and I think you know like for the Pat Schaeffer's uh, gang there I would have loved the scene you know if they were more along the lines if they'd gone as far as like for example like Vivian from The Young Ones <laughs> you know like they're all just like, ah! You know, like whatever. I, I could just. I, I would have loved to have seen that. It would just seem like they're more just kind of like you know Spanky and the little rascals. Like it just seemed like they were just more like our gang. I think watching the film, it's a
2: reminder that. Uh, you know there's that old saying dying is easy comedy is hard a film like this there's a certain kind of magic that has to be there to get the tone right and the energy at the right level that you know just isn't isn't quite there with this film and it's reminded Uh that uh, you know it's really hard to
0: get those ingredients together and to get them to work yeah yeah i think you're right paul and and going back to kind of what i said uh, at the start there's certainly you know to to think of some positives to say about it it's more than competently made shot nicely it looks pretty good. the The set design, the costumes, are all pretty good and pleasing to the eye. is unfortunately less than some of its parts. Like you say, Paul, whatever magic needs to be present to make these things work is completely absent here. Just one thing that I'll say is a positive, I'm like. <laughs> maybe a
2: bit banal to say this, but I like that a film like this exists. Like, I just like that somebody went for it, whether it be for cynical or for earnest kind of artistic reasons. I like that something... This kitschy, this clumsy, kind of wanting to be loved. I like that it happened, and I like that it's out there for anyone to discover. And as you say, Tim, I think like you know, seeing this with an audience or with you know friends and and booze, I think that also uh, can help make this this more enjoyable. I like it on the level of kitsch that doesn't quite make it, which it sounds like a damning it there, but I really do enjoy those kind of things that just aren't quite right, that aren't quite successful. Right. So I think that's that's the level on which um, which I enjoy.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is totally like a pickle and grilled cheese, you know what I mean?
4: <laughs> I like my pickles with grilled cheese. Thanks very much for picking this, Paul.
0: Yeah, thanks a bunch, Paul. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) My (laughs) pleasure. Look, you know You're welcome. (laughs) <laughs>
4: look I, I mean, as we all said this is a film that doesn't quite work but yeah look I, I think I'm with you in this regard that I'm glad that they attempted it and hopefully there's someone out there who says look we're going to remake this but we're going to do it right
0: well the thing is with, with well, films like this that aren't great necessarily don't work I mean the, you know they're still fun to talk about and it brought us all together to shoot the shit about this so that, that's right. positive surely
3: and you'll soon be able to find this on the Criterion channel <laughs> yeah <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, there is a Blu-ray of this film available in Germany where Pierzadora had particular chart success. I think that's the only part of the world where there is a Blu-ray of this film at this point. Betamax copies available at yard sales throughout the world.
4: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I think we'll conclude our discussion of Voyage of the Rock Aliens at that point. Huge thanks again to you, Paul, for coming onto the show again. We'd like to get you back on again this year. I don't want this to be like three years in between... Appearances. It's been wonderful once again, and thank you very much for, for having me on board. So, next month is going to be the episode that we were supposed to do this month. We have an interview with film director and author and editor of country music magazine, Tamara Saviano, although I believe in America it's pronounced Tamara. I'm not sure.
3: Tamara, yep.
4: Tamara Saviano is the author of a book called Without Getting Killed or Caught, which is about the life and times of country singer-songwriter Guy Clark. And she's also, with her husband Paul Whitfield, have made a documentary by the same name. I've read the book as well so it fills in some details that we don't see in the film but the film is a really wonderful doc uh, not just about Guy Clark but also about his wife Susanna and their relationship with Towns Van Zant. so it's a really three very important people at the core of this documentary I think the, the majority of it really is about Guy but his story is not complete without Susanna and Towns Van Zandt. So we'll be speaking to her about those three and about presumably Lyle Lovett and any of the other great songwriters who have come along in Guy's Wake. I'm really looking forward to it. The reason that she couldn't make it this month, why she had to defer for another month, was because the film won the award, I think, at the Austin Film Critics Circle for Best Documentary of 2021. Congratulations to you, Tamara, and looking forward to finding out how the award award ceremony went as well as uh, some stuff about the film and the book if you wish to be part of the music film discussion then join our facebook group facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast at see here podcast on instagram and if you choose to email us and why wouldn't you good old-fashioned means of communication see here podcast at gmail.com with all that thanks for listening as i said before this year we'll see our 100th episode if you have any ideas let us know we have a couple of ideas but if you come up with something that would be worthy of a 100th episode discussion maybe we'll do a round panel with a with a bunch of you about music film in general don't know but if you have any ideas reach out we'd love to hear from you until next month be nice to each other and uh, we look forward to um, speaking to you again in february of 2022 all the best cheers
1: New Orleans yeah.